What we are beginning here this morning is a mini-series on the Sabbath, which is uh, practical teaching, hopefully, Uh, but it's also, as with all the practical teachings, something which is undergirded by uh, doctrine and teaching, and that's that's always the way that you want to proceed. Uh, So it's based on the truth that we... uh, if yeah, if someone could help me with my son there, thank you. I, I I'm just not quite sure what happened uh, there. Uh, anyways, it's on the basis of the truth that we uh, that we live. And so, for the first two weeks out of six, I'm going to focus on more of the teaching element, the truth, and then um, uh, this is a rough outline. I haven't quite figured out how I'm going to do it. Uh, but classes three through six uh, will be more on the practical side. And, and, and on that, I, I would be open to having discussion. And I'm always, I'm always open to discussion in Sunday school. It's a much more laid-back kind of setting. Uh, and I enjoy that. I enjoy the interaction and the give and take. Uh, so uh, six weeks. I have seven weeks to cover uh, before... Dave Stevens starts at the beginning of September, and uh, I have a special Sunday school that I'm going to slide in probably at the beginning of August that's not Sabbath-related, so we're probably going to do three, then a break, then three. So that's the basic basic plan. Can anyone tell me which... I I mean, I hope you could all tell me, but uh, just somebody tell me which of the Ten Commandments are we covering here? This is an easy one. I hope it's like, boom, I got it. What's that? Yeah, but which one is that? What number? Oh, I got you. I got you. That's right. Uh, And then, yeah, that's the old Lutheran uh, understanding. So it's four. It's the fourth commandment. I want to read the fourth commandment. I want to start this teaching by reading to you the fourth commandment. And, you know, sometimes I'll ask people, what's the fourth commandment? I've had uh, interesting discussions with other Christian families, uh, especially as a result of the soccer playing that we do, and we don't play soccer on Sunday, uh, and there are some games on Sunday that we have to miss, and, I, and I'll ask people, I say, can you, can you tell me what the fourth commandment is? Do you, do you know what it is? Uh, the, the fourth commandment is, the first line anyways is, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Uh, sometimes people say something like, keep the Sabbath, but what does keep the Sabbath mean? Keeping the Sabbath is... Keeping it holy is something that is separate and set apart. So that's verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then the Lord expands it. And I I think I'm correct in saying it's the longest commandment. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your cattle nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed it. So, actually, the Lord is saying something quite comprehensive there. And uh, I think that, I I mean, he's encompassing the whole of your life in that commandment, if you didn't catch that. All of your days, not not just the seventh day, or in our case, the first day. But actually, he's telling you what to do all of your days, the six and the one. Uh, what you're supposed to be doing for six days and what you're supposed to be doing for 
the one in the seven. Uh, and, and that's what we're going to study for, for, uh, for six weeks. Uh, it won't be surprising to you that I, I, I will also look at some of the historical uh, dimensions as well. The way the Sabbath has been kept in America. The way it hasn't been kept. <laughs> we used to be a land of Sabbath keepers across the board. Not just Presbyterians, but Protestants and even unbelievers. It was a, na- a nation of Sabbath keepers. Uh, but boy, have we lost that. Anyways, I I think I've said enough for now. I'd like to pray and then begin uh, this first lesson. Father, we thank you for all of your laws. And uh, God, we we, we are especially thankful for the Sabbath. Uh, It is a commandment, but it's also, as all the commandments are, it's a blessing. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given us the Sabbath as a gift and as a blessing to your church and ask you that we might take it to heart and that we as, as as a group of Pilgrim people would be Sabbath keepers, and that would be part of our testimony to this world. Uh, that we love the Lord, and we love the Lord of the Sabbath, and we love His Sabbath. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so the base, I just want to notice the basic features of, of the, the fourth commandment. That we are to remember it, we are to keep the Sabbath day holy. We are, you notice, you shall is also attached to the six days. So there's, as John Murray points out, there's two commandments actually present in the fourth commandment. You shall keep the Sabbath day holy, but you shall work the six days. And I don't think you want to read what John Murray says about the five-day work week and how destructive it is to the Christian ethic, but he's not a fan. At any rate, uh, our focus will be uh, on the one day in seven. And that is the Lord's focus as well. When he says, you're to remember it, you're to keep it holy. Uh, In particular, what you're to remember is that that was the day that the Lord hallowed and that the Lord blessed. The day that he rested from his labors. Another feature that I would notice, and I I want to highlight this today as well. uh, And that is uh, that you are called, as in all the commandments, to be mindful of your neighbor. You are, you are not only to keep the Sabbath yourself, but you're to remember your neighbor and to help him keep the Sabbath, not to hinder him from keeping the Sabbath. That applies to all the commandments, but here it's made explicit. Remember your neighbor. The question which Christians uh, naturally have and honestly have is to what extent the fourth commandment applies to believers under the new covenant. I do not propose to answer that question today. I will answer that question next week. But I would ask anyone who who wavers on that question, whether the Sabbath, in all of its force, applies to the believer. If he says no to that, is he also prepared to say the same of the other nine commandments? And if not, why not? Why single out the fourth? Or why restrict the fourth, when with the other three we find in the New Covenant that they're greatly expanded, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. That if anything, what Jesus does is he takes the commandments and he presents them in a far more searching and exalted manner. So that what we actually find in the New Covenant is that we are, we are more uh, carefully keeping the law of God. Not, not more careless, but more careful. And that we actually have a better grasp of what the law means, what law-keeping means, because we have that, that very law written on our hearts. What, what do you think that Jeremiah meant when he said the Holy Spirit would write the law of God on your heart? 
he meant the Ten Commandments. Now, now I take that for granted. I would be, I would be fascinated to know if, if anyone would suggest anything different. So Christians, of all people, have a grasp of what the law means. Uh, and that's, that's how historically Christians have understood all the commandments, including the fourth. Well, as I say, this is a, a mini-series. I think I can already tell I'm not going to finish uh, this first lesson. I don't know where the time goes in Sunday school, but it just, it just slips away. Um, my, I want to share with you my primary sources. Uh, the, the main source is this book by Glenn Necht, the, the Day That God Made. It's a very simple little book on the Sabbath. I know that people in this church have read it with profit, uh, even to the point where they said, uh, I, I'm, I'm more of a Sabbatarian now than I was before. Now I'm persuaded. I have about eight or ten copies of these, and I would, I, I would give this to anyone who, who promised to read it. This is not just a book to put on your shelf. I only have about eight copies, like I said. So someone who promised to read it, uh, I, I have copies available. Um, another resource that I found I find uh, so helpful is Terry Johnson. I used another book by Terry Johnson in my last study on Reformed worship, uh, but this is his book on family worship. Uh, but he has a wonderful introduction that I want to go through today, although I can already tell him that's the end of the lesson. We're, we're probably never going to get there, but he has, he has a wonderful um, chapter, the introductory chapter, uh, on family worship and Sabbath keeping, and he sees them as intertwined practices. Uh, it's, it's one of the most helpful Lord's Day chapters I've ever read, and that alone is worth getting the book for. Not just for family worship, although it's helpful there too, but the way he describes the rhythm of the Christian week. It's wonderful, and I, I plan to share it with you as well. And then... Um, the Directory of Worship, which I love, I profess my love for this little booklet. Uh, it's just a little book within this little book. I love our Directory of Worship, and the first two pages uh, portray the Sabbath and the life of the church so beautifully. We are going to cover that today, I hope. And then fourthly, I don't have it with me, it's on my desk, but uh, Hughes Oliphant Old has a book on worship. Worship Reformed According to Scripture, that's his book. Uh, frankly... That's another book I think every, every Christian should have. Uh, it's a wonderful defense of, of the historic, not Reformed faith, but the historic Reformed practice. And the most practical aspect of the Reformed faith is our worship. Uh, I made that case in the previous study. And all of the practices of worship are covered in that book. And one of the chapters is, not surprisingly, the Lord's Day. Uh, and, I, and I hope to share with you, he's a historian, or he was, um, he's no longer with us, but his chapter on the Lord's Day is wonderful. It covers the history of Sabbath keeping from Jesus' resurrection, that first Lord's Day, Sunday morning, uh, and the, the, the way Christians have observed that as their Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath, ever since Jesus was raised, and also the, the way and the reasons that it fell out of use uh, in, in, among, among Christians, uh, especially in America, during the time of the Second Great Awakening. We'll get into that next week as well. Well, let me ask you this question. It's a question I ask myself, and that is how to begin a study on the Sabbath. And I would begin by asking uh, another question, and that is why have such... Why have such a study? 
A helpful place to begin in answering that question is by a little, uh, by sharing with you thoughts from a little article by John Murray, and I could share this with anyone who wanted it. Uh, excuse me, John Meather, not John Murray. John Murray is is no longer with us, but John Meather is. He's an elder in the Oviedo Church. He's a professor at RTS. A former historian of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and we do have a historian of our of our denomination. We have a different one now, but he was he was the one who uh, who led up to the current one, Camden Busey. But uh, th- this this appeared in New Horizons. I've used it before. Again, I'll share it with anyone who would like it. I'll just share the link. Although you could look it up yourself, just type in the search bar "New Horizons: The Sabbath." John Meather. I mean, it'd be the first hit. Uh, He makes the case uh, that even though Sabbath keeping used to be a common feature of American Protestantism, and it has fallen out of use, it is still a distinctive feature of the OPC. And it's possible even you would go into an OPC church and you would say, well, they're just holding on to a bygone era. (laughs) And in some sense, I would agree with that. Except it isn't just that we're holding on to a bygone era, but that we are holding on to things that we think should still be part of our own era. Uh, So it isn't just uh, being enamored with history, but it's hoping to see those historical uh, features brought back into prominence in our own day. Well, Meether answers the question, or he asks the question, and then he answers it. Whatever happened to Sabbath-keeping anyways? I mean, some of you, maybe, I don't want to insult anyone here, but some of you maybe are old enough to remember that, you know, most stores were closed on the Sabbath. I don't know. if, if that is that your recollection, Gaylene? Publix was closed when we moved up here 30 years ago. Oh, even 30 years ago. There, it, was, it, was, it was a part of American culture. Uh, and the reason it was a part of American culture is because, well, the church had such a large say in that culture. And the church was holding on to the Sabbath. And what do you think happened when the church stopped holding on to the Sabbath? Do you think the culture did? <laughs> what happens when the salt loses its saltiness? What happens when the light ceases to shine? Do you think the darkness is going to find it? Well, what happened was... And, I, and, I, and I'll explain this just a little bit. But what happened was that the church stopped keeping the Sabbath. Not the culture, but the church. He says, we live in an age of Sabbath indifference. And again, the tragedy of that is that this is, we're, we're basically a generation removed from it. It's not like this has been a, an age-old thing. Although the seeds of it, as we'll see, were sown in the Second Great Awakening, which was... Uh, the time of uh, middle 1800s. But he says in this age, and, and, uh, and Terry Johnson makes this, po- this point, Hughes Oliphant Old makes this point, Glenn Necht makes this point, and, and that is, I, I think I've made it enough, but I'm quoting Meether here, you may be surprised to learn how nearly universal was the Sabbatarianism of 19th century American Protestantism. So he's taking us into the 1800s, and, and his point is that the erosion of the Sabbath in the church began in the 1900s or the 20th century. What, what Meether points out is that uh, who, who do you think was at the forefront of holding on to the Sabbath? 
in the 19th century or, or in the 20th century. But even in the 19th century, it was the Presbyterians. They were at the forefront. It was the Presbyterians who lamented as, uh, as Protestant churches expanded as a missionary enterprise into the West, the Western states, that those states were the land beyond the Sabbath. That's a quote. Yeah, they... I don't know if very many people know what the term blue law is. Yeah, I think, I, I'm guessing most people do, but... Um, if blue laws were laws that restricted business activity um, in states and cities um, on the Sabbath, on the Lord's Day. Yep. Um, we had a, a town in Iowa that was a prominent Dutch settlement and very, very much reformed, very Calvinistic. In fact, they had a basketball team, I think that were called the Calvinists. Um, <laughs> the, their schools were, were Calvinistic. I mean, it was very, very Christian. And they had blue laws all the way up into, I think, like the 1980s. Um, wow. That, that the entire town, which was uh, very, very popular with tourism, shut down on Sunday. No businesses were allowed to be open on Sunday. Yeah, yeah. And there's there's still remnants of that, but not many. Not many. Uh, one of the things that was interesting, and you'll see this in Robert Murray McShane, uh, whether I get to it or not. Now, this is 19th century in Scotland, but that the Presbyterians... Connected, Meether says, the fate of the nation with uh, the keeping of the Sabbath. And that they believe that giving away the Sabbath would destroy the, the, the moral fabric of the nation. It would open the nation to all manner of vices. Meether says, well actually this is Fred Hood that he's quoting, the proper observation of the Sabbath was considered to be the most essential element in the maintenance of morals and therefore the preservation of of the nation. But what, what happened in... Uh, so I, I, guess, I guess when I say Presbyterians... My history is a little fuzzy, I'm admitting, but when Presbyterians were at the forefront of defending the Sabbath, I, I suppose that places us in the 19th century. But when you come into the 20th century, what happened was this, uh, Meether says... Presbyterians simply dropped the subject. They simply capitulated. They simply decided, now this is the mainline Presbyterian church, they simply decided that it was too hard that public life, which was rapidly being urbanized, uh, was incompatible with, uh, with this outdated mode of living, which included... Uh, a healthy view of the Sabbath. American culture wasn't just being industrialized and urbanized, but it was being secularized. And a clear indicator of that was the Sabbath was falling out of use. Nearly all Protestants, Meether says, both mainliners and evangelicals abandoned or greatly modified the practice of Sabbath-keeping convinced that the challenge of living in a highly tech technological and pluralistic world demanded a reconsideration of the Sabbath and its obligations. Pragmatism set in. 
Necht also, I want to read a quote from him. He says, sadly, the day has suffered the erosion of all kinds of forces arrayed against it. Some, when they think of it, call up images of legalistic and dreary days of distant past. Seldom it is anticipated and loved and honored by the people of God, the very ones who should appreciate it most. Now, when you read something like that, I, I think if you're a student of history, it would call to mind the Puritans and one of the things that, and, and their heirs. So their heirs in America, we'll call them the, the, the Puritans. Well, the Pilgrim Fathers, I think I call them actually, not Puritans, but the Pilgrim Fathers in New England, or you think of the sons of the Puritans in Scotland and England. One of the things that was distinctive about their view of the Christian life was the centrality of the Lord's Day. But uh, that is something that seems highly, again, out of date. And some would even argue legalistic. The question that Mether then goes on to ask, in light of this historical phenomenon, so that now we could say all of America and all of Europe, with this rich history of Sabbath-keeping, all of them together, collectively, have become the land beyond the Sabbath, How does the OPC fit into this picture, he asks. And what he says, happily, although strangely to many, that Sabbath keeping has always been, from 1936 onward, even until this very day, a distinctive feature of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. It is common not only for established denominations or, or, or churches, excuse me, such as ours to have morning and evening worship and to emphasize the blessing and the duty of Sabbath keeping among its members, uh, but even for church plants to, to start out with a morning and an evening service. Not always, in fairness. Sometimes they need to get a little traction before they can start that evening service. Uh, but uh, by the way, that was also super common. It used to be common for every church to have an evening service. Uh, Sometimes people say, so the evening service, is that just the same as the morning and you're just giving people an option? I mean, it's so foreign to people now, but it wasn't that long ago that you had morning and evening worship. Uh, Again, that was was a, a reflection of the Sabbatarianism that was so ingrained in American Protestantism. The OPC has always been committed to holding on to that tradition. The OPC, if you haven't noticed, although don't give us too much credit, but if you haven't noticed, there there is not the same spirit of pragmatism. And some would argue that's holding us back, and maybe it is. I think the numbers speak for themselves. It is holding us back. (laughs) It's keeping us from explosive growth. Uh, but and it's keeping us small. But pragmatism has never been part of the ethos of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Uh, holding on to what we felt was right and true in uh, Scripture and in the Christian tradition. That is what, uh, what we have always held on to. And, and let me also add that we, we do believe that that, that is attra- attractive in and of itself, that there is an inherent beauty in holiness and scriptural religion. Uh, and so I will never believe, and indeed my conviction is growing, I will never believe that this is something that is repulsive, but actually that this is something which is, which is lovely and that we ought to hold dear. And I mean the, the, whole of, uh, the whole of 
we could call it scriptural religion or we could call it Presbyterian piety, uh, the very things that we believe and practice in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and at Calvary. Sabbatarianism in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church is a requirement for ministerial office. You cannot be a minister who does not hold to and practice the Sabbath. It, it is, it, that, there are exceptions that are allowable. That is not one of them. Now, that would distinguish us from our brothers in the PCA. It is, it is a common exception, a ministerial exception, to say, I, I take exception to the Sabbath, and uh, the, man, the man becomes a minister. Ministers have been disciplined in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church for not holding to the Sabbath. Again, this is a, a distinctive feature of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. It is a key component of the moral law. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Jonathan. So, just to crap on the PCA, but like, if a minister takes an exception to it, like, what does that practically mean? Does that mean they're... Like, what does that mean taking an exception? Well, the question was, what does it mean taking an exception? In fairness, you can take exceptions in the OPC as well. But an exception of that magnitude is only possible practically in a setting where it's a much looser form of subscription to the confession, if that makes sense. Right, so are they just holding that the Sabbath isn't a Is that what they're taking exception to? Uh, I'm sure what that means. Well, it would, it right. would, mean, it would mean that uh, under the new covenant uh, that uh, the Sabbath has been ag- abrogated. Yeah, I mean, it would be... Theologically, there is some basis for that, Romans 14.5, that we're to hold all days alike. There is an, uh, an argument that they make. I, I know a, a dear brother in the PCA who made this argument. It was, it was not, I was not impressed. I was not pleased. Uh, so, so practically, Sunday or the Sabbath will bear no difference in appearance for that minister to any other day of the week, aside from working. I guess I'm trying to practically what that means. Well, I mean... <laughs> That that would vary by the degree of however many men held that view. I mean, it could. I would say there would be a lot less restraints, but they would still hold worship services on Sunday. So the reality is actually practically it could end up looking very similar. Uh, but yeah, yeah. I, I think more pra- more practically, what you find in that setting is that uh, a looser adherence to the confession has opened the door to other errors. <laughs> that they, they, they may not have wanted to let in, uh, that thankfully we have not had to deal with in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Uh, but, but Murray, I keep calling him Murray, Meether uh, points to, there's much more to the article, but I'm just going to leave it at this, uh, the, the practice of evening worship as, as the clearest indication. He gives a statistic in 1958, 95% of our congregations had two services on Sunday. In 2008, that had dropped to 70. I would just say, I, I don't know what the number is in 2022, but I, I would be shocked if the number was any lower than that. In fact, it, I would guess it's probably gone back up. I, I can't even think of a church in our presbytery that does not hold evening worship, not a single one. And so he says that is a, an indication... Of a, of, the, of a presence of a strong Sabbatarianism that pervades our denomination. I remember once asking Hughes Oliphant Old. I, now, I don't actually agree with him. I think he, was, he wasn't strong enough as a Sabbatarian. 
But I said, how do you keep the Sabbath? And he says, by going to morning and evening worship. Now, now if that's your Sabbatarianism, it's hard for me to argue with it. (laughs) Although I I, I don't think it quite goes far enough. Uh, But but it goes most of the way. Uh, So, so how do you know that we're a Sabbatarian denomination? Well, we match that description. I still like the description, even if I would say that's, uh, that's not quite far enough. Now, if any of you remember from the last study, I gave out a handout that talked about Presbyterian practices and Presbyterian qualities. And there were six Presbyterian practices and there, there were six or seven Presbyterian qualities that described Reformed worship. But one of those practices was the presence of a Christian calendar. And this is something Daryl Hart says somewhat provocatively in Re- Recovering Mother Kirk, but I love, I love it. He said, you know, we have, we have a high church calendar too. And we have a high holy day. It's called the Lord's Day. And we observe it 52 times a year. Uh, and that's, you know, that's somewhat, somewhat comical and somewhat provocative. But it's also true. If you, if you really appreciate the stress in historic Presbyterianism on the centrality of the Lord's Day, you would say, that is the high holy day of the Christian church. Uh, And by the way, I'm going to make the case next time that not just of the Presbyterian church, but of the Christian church historically. I want to go through Murray, Murray McShane's uh, I Love the Lord's Day, but I think that a better use of our time would be, so I'm going to put that in brackets on my notes, and we'll look at that to start out next time. I want to look at our directory of worship and what it has to say about, now this is the directory of worship, the book of church order of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and we have a form of government, a directory of worship, and a book of discipline. The directory uh, of worship, or for worship, I always call it directory of worship, but here, there's the word for right there. Anyways, uh, it opens with the principles of public worship. Now, it gives a definition of worship, which I think is, is wonderful. Now, I, I've defined worship in the Leviticus preaching. Can anyone tell me what that is? Very simple definition. According to Leviticus, what is worship? Approaching God. Yes, it's approaching God. It's drawing near to God. Well, this defines worship in the same way, but here's another helpful definition. Worship itself consists primarily in specific acts of communion with God. Now, I like that because that's better than my definition because it says communion with God is... I mean, it does include this, but it isn't just me, you know, strolling through the woods experiencing God. It is that. But, but worship... Public worship especially consists in specific acts of communion with God. And what are those specific acts? Those are what we would call the ordinances that God has set up for us uh, to use in his worship. It emphasizes in the next uh, statement that believers are to worship as churches and assemblies of public worship which are not carelessly or willfully to be neglected. Public worship occurs when God, by His Word and Spirit, through the lawful government of the church, calls His people to assemble to worship Him together. So it gives a definition of worship and then of public worship. 
what do you think it emphasizes next? Now, it's too obvious, so I'll just answer my own question. It emphasizes the Sabbath. It, it says that God gave to man the Sabbath so that he might worship him. That's the spirit of the Sabbath. It isn't just the rest from the six days of work. That's not the point. Do you think Adam was wearied by his six-day work week? No, but he still needed a Sabbath. The reason we need to rest from our labors is so that we might devote ourselves to the worship of God, so that we might attend his public worship and his ordinances. So this is what the book says. In, in his word, God specially appointed one day in seven as a Sabbath to be kept holy to him. It is the duty of everyone to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it. I'm skipping down a little bit. By raising Christ from the dead on the first day of the week, God sanctified that day. It's a, just before that, it says, up until the coming of Christ, the Sabbath had been the seventh day. But by raising Christ, God made the first, he hallowed the first day. Uh, going on with the quote, and from the time of the apostles, the church accordingly has kept the first day of the week as the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day, and as the day on which to assemble for Christian worship. Now each weekly cycle begins with the people of God resting in Christ in the worship of his name, followed by six days of work. The Lord's Day thus both depicts that the Christian's rest has already begun in Christ and anticipates his eternal rest of his sons and daughters in the new heavens and the new earth. So it's just a general description of the Sabbath, but you find that in the directory of worship in connection with public worship. It's, it's fascinating. It's helpful. It goes on to give directions for keeping the Sabbath as a holy day of worship. It's a day of rest, but it's also a day of worship. And it's primarily a day of worship. You rest so that you can worship God's covenant people, it says, are to devote the entire Lord's Day as holy to the Lord. In order to cite this is old Puritan practice, but it's certainly fallen out of use. In order to sanctify the day, it's necessary for them to prepare for its approach. Saturday night may not be the night to, to stay up until 12.30 and then show up all exhausted and uh, and and disheveled. They should attend to their ordinary affairs beforehand. You have six days to get your act together. Uh, so you got a busy Monday morning coming up? Attend to it on Saturday or late on Sunday. But, but I remember Sinclair Ferguson saying, the way we spend our Sabbaths is as much a reflection of uh, the way we spend the other six days of the week. Were we diligent in our labors or were we slothful? God gave you six full days. He gave you a bounty. It's more than enough. Are you spending them well? Well, if you are, you should have no trouble wrapping that up and beginning to anticipate and look forward to the Lord's Day. Once they get to the Lord's Day. Well, no, let me, let me just pause on that point for a moment. If you ever notice, I've pointed this out before, and, I, and I'm guilty of this too. Uh, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to get through this, but that's all right. We'll, we'll pick up with this last time. Have you ever noticed that the last thing you do at night is the first thing you think of when you wake up in the morning? <laughs> well, that, that principle needs to be adhered to, especially, especially on Saturday nights. Do something before you go to bed. I, I, I like to read Christian biography. 
But I've also found at times, I don't, don't do this often, but this might be the greatest blessing is, is, is turning on a sermon and even just listening to five or ten minutes of it. It's amazing you, you, you wake up thinking of it. Uh, just, just a practical point for you to think about. Conversely, if you do something utterly worldly, it's amazing how you bring that into the next day. They are then to observe, bringing us into the Sabbath, a holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts concerning their everyday employments and recreations. You notice things lawful. You're not just resting from sin. You're even resting from things which God has commanded you to do the other six days. But he says, I want you to lay them aside. Not just your works, but your recreations. Don't make your tea time on Sunday. I don't think we have any golfers in the congregation. Don't start getting itching for that NFL game that's starting at 1 p.m. You see, if you just stop watching the NFL, you won't even be thinking about it ever on Sundays. I had to do that. And they are to devote themselves to delighting in the public and private exercises of communion with God and His people. So what, what, the, what the book, our, our directory, is setting forth, and this is what I'm going to be setting forth this whole class, is that this is the great day. It's not just a duty to be observed or a law to be kept, but it is a blessing for God's people. It is a day when we get to be with other Christians. It's a day when we get to sing song after song after song. Uh, song and psalms. It's a, it's a day when we get to listen to two sermons. It's a day when we get to devote ourselves to specific acts of communion and fellowship with God himself without the distractions and the busyness of the other six days. Uh, wear yourself out the other six days. I'm going to get to this when I get to Terry Johnson. Uh, utterly spend yourself in your labors. But you should rest from all of that on Sunday and devote the whole day to the Lord. It also says that they shall, it says all believers, not just Christian ministries, they shall so order works of necessity on that day that they do not improperly detain others from public worship of God, nor otherwise hinder them from sanctifying the Sabbath. Remember your neighbor. Are are you asking him to break the Sabbath so that you can keep the Sabbath? That's, That's a question that I'll leave you with, but you might imagine where I'm going with that, And if I'm not clear, we'll get to it in the practice of Sabbath keeping. But always remember your neighbor. And this is what it says to close, and we'll, we'll end with this. I love this. The Lord's Day is a day of holy convocation, the day which the Lord calls His people to assemble for public worship. Although it's fitting and proper that the members of Christ's church assemble for worship on other occasions also, which are left to the discretion of particular sessions, so you might have... I don't know, a Wednesday night or a Saturday men's breakfast. Although you might have those. It says, The Lord calls the whole congregation of each local church to the sacred duty and high privilege of assembling for public worship each Lord's Day. He expressly commands His people to draw near to Him, not forsaking the assembling of themselves together. And then it says, It doesn't require this of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. But it says that it is highly advisable. Now, if it said uh, churches shall, then this would be a requirement. But highly advisable is a, a recommendation, a strong recommendation. It's highly advisable, it says, that a congregation assemble for public worship at the beginning and the ending of the Lord's Day. And I can't think of anything, I need to close, but I can't think of anything which has been more helpful to me uh, in keeping the Sabbath. And remember, I was a layman too. Uh, But I'm still a Christian, and I still am called to obey in the same ways uh, as you are. 
nothing so helpful as ending the day in worship. If, you, if, you're, if you're seeking to keep the Sabbath day, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. If you're see, seeking to keep the whole of the day holy, closing the day in worship has been the most helpful practice uh, for me, helping me to live out that principle and that command and to experience the blessing. I have so much more I, I, I could say, but we're going to end there and I've, I've taken too much time as it is. 1043 is not too bad, but we'll, we'll end with that.